My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. And yes, this is our first ever bonus episode. Mike, why is this our first ever bonus episode? Well, uh, because we got a special interview with a special guest and one of our special friends now, <laughs> I guess, uh, <laughs> Thomas Jane. That's right, editor in chief Michael Rothman of Consequence of Sound. <laughs> we got Thomas Jane, and we're only in month 10. We we recorded this. You're hearing this, I guess, probably Monday sometime. Yeah. We recorded this on a Friday night. We're not going to go out and party. We would rather talk to the god, Thomas Jane. We pulled it off. It oh, happened. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had some great Friday nights in the past. <laughs> some really, really great Friday nights. I've fallen in love. I've uh, been terrified. I've seen great movies. I've gone to amazing concerts. But, but you know what, Mike? You know, you, know, you know what you have not done before tonight? I haven't talked to Thomas Jane. You had not talked to Thomas Jane. Yeah. So, um, yes, you're getting a bonus episode, and you'll still be expecting, um, and as, we, as you very well should, another episode later on this week. We will be talking Creepshow and Creepshow 2 with a couple special guests. So we're looking forward to that episode. But, listen, we could have tacked this on at the end of another episode, but we, have, we had to get it out there. Yeah. Because it was a, a wide-ranging interview. We talk uh, his three films that he did um, of Stephen King adaptations, including Dreamcatcher. Uh, the Mist and 1922. We talked about some other projects he's done along the way, and one of my favorite topics was probably absinthe uh, during the Dreamcatcher era. Yeah, in Switzerland. What am I talking about? You'll soon know. <laughs> yeah. Let's enjoy an interview with Thomas Jane. I believe that there's another man inside every man. Conniving man. In 1922, I murdered my wife. Hello? Hey, buddy. Now it's just you and me. Nice. Oh, I got news, Mr. Jane. Uh, this is Justin. So we got three people on the phone now. <laughs> I'm with Mike okay. over here. How are you? You, Mike, and Justin, right? Yeah. All right. That's right. How you guys where are you? We are calling from Chicago, actually. Now, you said you're in the hills. Do you care to share where exactly you are right now? Without getting too specific, of course. Well, well I mean, it's a big, it's a big hill. I don't think anybody... <laughs> um, I'm in, I, live in, uh, I live in Los Angeles and um, in Silver Lake, uh, which is... Uh, in between downtown and Hollywood, it used to be a kind of crappy neighborhood next to Echo Parque, which is where all the uh, gangs used to hang out. I, I knew a buddy, I was going to acting school, and he lived in Echo Park, and every time he got off the bus, he took his life into his hands. It was dangerous, <laughs> especially for white people, and one day... He got off the bus, and a couple of guys followed him and bashed his brains in with a lead pipe. Jesus. And 
and he was, he, he lived, but he was never the same, you know, he was just, and it was kind of tragic. He was, he was a pretty bright guy. And, you know, when, when he came back, he was sort of a, a little slow and mm-hmm. took a couple seconds to sort of answer a, a, a question. And he, and he talked slow and it, it was brutal. I was like, wow, we stay the hell out of Echo Park. <laughs> but uh, now it's, yeah, now it's pretty badass. I mean, I know, um, I know my, uh, a bunch of friends um, used to live there and they moved up to, I think Glendale, but um, yeah, I love, I love the Silver Park, area, the Silver Lake area. Actually, actually uh, I got engaged there <laughs> which I, a few years ago. Um, Silver Lake? In Silver Lake. Yeah. Yeah. There's Holy a, shit. Yeah. There's a place called the Satellite, this like venue that was around there. And um, yeah. one of the bands that I was friends with played there and it was, it was fun. It was a, it's a cool place. So, uh, how'd you do it? What did you just ask her on the dance floor? Do you have oh. the band's song? What'd you do? This is a good story. Yeah, on, yeah. I'm, we're, I'm a huge uh, replacements fan, and um, I had we were playing. Uh, I got up there and played "Can't Hardly Wait," and then uh, it was on New Year's Eve, so it was like right. Um, everyone was pretty wasted and drunk, and then I uh, was singing the song, and then during like the extended break. I just was like, was wondering, I was like, oh, is my girlfriend out there? Because uh, I want to marry her. And she came up on stage and then we finished the song. It was, it was pretty awesome. It was, uh, it, it was pretty good. So I got some <laughs> pretty good memories of Silver Lake. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a wild time. I'm a huge Paul Westerberg fan, man. I, I, I love that guy. He's fucking awesome. Were you, did you, were you able to see him on the, the last replacements tour? No, no. Oh, I no. Am long time i seen him back in the day and that was pretty great but i oh, haven't seen absolutely. him haven't seen him lately I, I love some of his solo stuff i mean that guy what an artist man i yeah the, the placements were just they were just nobody like him you know just geniuses agree I, yeah they're my they're my favorite band i mean i and i actually got into the replacements through paul westerberg's solo stuff because he had done a single he had done singles, and I uh, I loved that soundtrack, and I really loved those two songs he did for it. And then I just became obsessed with his solo stuff. Like I love for uh, um, I love fourteen songs. I love like Sweet Cane, Gratification. I mean, they're just great, just amazing, amazing musician. Um, Best. Still, I agree. Still, in, huh? Yeah, he's he's kill, he's killing it too. I mean, he's he keeps uh, releasing. He keeps dropping random albums because um, yeah, he does a lot of like lo-fi. Uh, DIY stuff. On He's his got. Uh, he released a solo, an, an album with Julian Hatfield last year under the, the I don't I, the I don't cares. I think yeah. is the, the name of the band. But yeah. really good, just soft. I mean, not soft, but really good, solid, just pop punk rock. You know, yeah. Good, as always with Paul Westerberg. And he still writes good music. Like some of the songs are still kick ass. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. He, he hasn't lost any of that. That fury, I guess that word gets thrown around a lot. But it's true. I mean, he still yeah. has it. it it's still just efficient music, you know yeah saying that these past the past few years he's put out more some more great songs some more because i have the last thing i have is it's got to be 10 years old or maybe more you know i i um i guess my music collection's getting old i think that uh, speak for all of us right now but no yes if you look for the it's called the i don't cares that's the name of the band yeah and that was about a year and a half ago and that was his first material and i think it had been this a long time yeah so you might not you might just just barely be off base right now (laughs) 
Oh, that makes sense. Um, so he, so it's been a while, and then he put out this I Don't Care. And you're saying I should pick it up because it's got some good tunes on it. Definitely, Absolutely. Yes. 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 I think you'll dig it. You'll definitely dig I, it. Singing, right? <laughs> he's, he's singing. Yeah, it's all him. It's him. Well, I think Josh Freeze on drums. Yeah. Um, and Julian Hatfield uh, does some harmonies, does guitar, sings some songs yeah. as well. It's, it's strong stuff. It's strong stuff. And that Westerberg voice, fuck. And he yeah. still has that voice too, which is even better. Yeah, that might be because he hasn't recorded in so long. But um, you know, who knows? I don't know. Yeah, we'd love to talk to him one day as well. I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But we do want to say um, we started this podcast, I guess, in January, Mike. Yeah. And then I'm not being hyperbolic when we said we were really looking forward to one day speaking to you. And so we're very, <laughs> very happy that you're taking some time out on a Friday evening to speak to the coolest people in America. <laughs> Um, we really Same. appreciate it. You guys just started this podcast in January? Yeah, we just started in January. And, um, you know, we're doing really well for ourselves. You know, Not to <laughs> yeah. pat ourselves on the back, but we've right. um, managed to talk to the director of IT, the director of Gerald's Game. And we just spoke to uh, Zach Kilditch, actually. What was it, a couple days ago, Mike? Yeah, it was about two days ago. We, we're actually with uh, Consequence of Sound, though. We've, we were, we've been around for like about 10 years now. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary um, so, but yeah, we started the, the Stephen King podcast like back in January, just cause we're huge, huge Stephen King fans. And, um, it's funny, yeah, like, just, like Justin said, we, I mean, we're also huge Thomas Jane fans. So we were, we've always been, we've always for the whole past like nine months, we've been joking around saying like, Oh, we got to get Jane. We got to get Jane. We got to get Jane. So this has been a uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> and it worked out, you know? Um, yeah. Well, let's um, let's go through. I mean, you've done three Stephen King movie adaptations at this point: The Dreamcatcher, uh, The Mist, and 1922. So let's start with um, Dreamcatcher. Uh, this was your first one. You worked with Lawrence Kasdan, very famous for The Big Chill. Wrote some Star Wars films, obviously. Body and he he handpicked the cast. Um, had you two known each other at all prior to this? No, we hadn't, and I think wow. he. Him and his son are now writing uh, the new Star Wars, the new Indiana Jones. They're writing something big. Yeah, Jake Kasdan, I think, right? Didn't he? I think they both yeah, did. Um, they did the Han Solo one, I think, together. That's right. Yeah. Right, right. So, so Jake and his dad uh, did the Han Solo movie. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Wrote That's it. Correct. And it hasn't come out yet, right? That comes out next December, I next believe. Next year, yeah. Yeah. They film these movies three years ahead of time at this point. It's crazy. Yeah. He's a hell of a writer, and Jake Kasdan has also become a really good writer in his own right. So them two working together is exciting. I mean, I'll, I'll go see the movie just to just to check out the uh, the, the writing, you know? Because yeah. I, I think he's a super talented guy. He's a laid-back kind of... He kind of he kind of talks like this, you know. Tom, <laughs> no, I. Where you been? You know, called you. Oh, I couldn't get a hold of you. You know, I, one time I was in love with a girl. I ended up marrying her, but uh, and this shoot was so big and unwieldy, and we were up in the frozen Arctic, eight hundred miles from the Arctic Circle, up in you know, like the tip of Canada, and <laughs> and. Uh, and I snuck out of there one Friday, you know, I hopped on a plane and, and cause I'm like, these guys are never going to get to me. I'm going to hop on a plane go see my girl and fly back on Sunday. And sure enough, you know, Friday morning, I get off the plane. I got all these calls. 
Where are you? Tom, Tom. I had to call him and tell him I was in L.A. I'd never done that before, and i never done it since, let me tell you. But Larry was Larry took it in stride, you know. He, he just sort of gave me a lot of shit <laughs> when I got back. But it's a big enough, it was a big enough production that they had plenty of other stuff to shoot. But uh, I was pretty, you know, I was young and in love and all that. And I, I, and I, I flipped the coin and lost. You know. <laughs> oh, no. I, well, hey, the things it, we do for love, what can I say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was worth it. You know, I ended up marrying a girl. <laughs> had a yeah. good time. Number of years. Um, That's good. So, I don't know, you know, Dreamcatcher was one of the movies where we all, no, Larry didn't know me, he just called me up and, you know, he, I guess he liked my work and, and, uh, I didn't want to do it, you know, I was young and, and I was like, Larry, I don't understand this script, I mean, I just can't even tell what's going on and, and he's like, you know, and he sort of gave me the pitch and, you know, Larry's a good talker and he talked me into doing it, they paid me a bunch of money. And uh, I show up for um, the read-through, and it's Morgan Freeman and Tom Sizemore and all these other actors, terrific Damian Lewis and all these guys, all great guys. You know, the guy that played the sheriff on that on that one show that went for a while, uh, Timothy, and all uh, yeah. and and we're all sitting around and we do the reading, and then Morgan Freeman goes at the end. He goes, "Man, I got to tell you." What's going on? You know, like, <laughs> weird. I can't figure it out. And everybody was sort of echoing that. And and Larry, you know, he's like, "Look, we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna figure it out as we go." And he never really did. You know, and the most successful sequence was the one with uh, the skateboarder, and you know, when the when the shit weasel comes out of the toilet. Oh yeah, um, yeah, with the famous skateboarder i forget his name but he uh he, that was a great sequence on the page and that was a great sequence in the movie i think it's a really terrific sequence and i it's think it's an intense sequence yeah definitely i think that's about it you know it's amazing how it read on the page really well and it also filmed really well uh, and the rest of it was just sort of this weird mishmash of god knows what which was just bizarre i guess the movie would be pretty terrific if you were tripping on mushrooms uh i think it would be a good one to put on if you had a you know hearty uh, constitution and you weren't gonna sort of jump or freak out or well, you know um, king king wrote that um after his accident um i think he was right. in the hospital for a lot of that so i don't know how many drugs he was on um trying to recover during that period so that explains a lot right there too <laughs> yeah wrote it on the floor uh, he he couldn't move his back, so he was literally on a board on the floor, and he, that's how he wrote most of that book. Um, while he's laying on a floor, not being able to move, and he was hopped up on Vicodin. Now he told me that. Well, this um, this all checks out. Again, the story is insane, <laughs> so you know. Uh, yeah, it's kind of great. It's sort of a it's like a lucid uh, uh, opiate opium trip, you know. <laughs> Plays like that, and sure enough, you know, we did the movie, and, and for some reason, Morgan Freeman decided to get these giant eyebrows put on. Was that his decision? Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I looked, I was like, oh, man, finally get to work. <laughs> you know, like, 
So you could kind of tell, or at least I could kind of tell, that this was going to be a really fucking weird movie. Um, and sure enough, you know, it was. But we all went to Paris when it was over. Because back in the day, they used to, the studio would fly you, um, you know, over Europe, and everybody got on a plane, and then we all ate dinner, and we spent a few days in Paris. I brought my brother. We had a great time. I discovered some, uh, this is back when absinthe was illegal, and I discovered this lady who was making absinthe in Switzerland and bringing it in, so I bought some absinthe from her, and I found these great old antique absinthe uh, glasses and stuff, and I got into all that. way. And then, sure enough, a few years later, it became really popular, and then they made it legal, and it got boring, so I went on to other things. <laughs> Here's a sad story about me. I, I have still not been to L.A., and I have still not had absinthe, so oh, I have not lived a life yet. That is... But, but you got to be careful, because uh, absinthe, most of the stuff they make is just crap. They put artificial coloring in there, mm. and they... Just and it's not real absinthe. However, there are a couple of companies, and now there's more than a couple. It used to be there just one. His name was Ted Brew, uh, and his company's called Jade, J-A-D-E, Jade Absinthe. So if anybody wants to check out a real artisanal absinthe, you got to check out the Jade Absinthe. They make four or five of them. I like the Edward, which is fucking great. And uh, and there's a couple other smaller companies that also make good stuff, too. But if you want to have the real experience, do it the right way. Don't light it on fire or any of that other no, crap no, no, no. people do. You know, do it the way that, that they used to do it. And But the thing is that the Thujon, I, I believe, is a little less than it used to be. There's discrepancy about that. Some people say that that's not true. Other people say that, you know... It is true. They put a limit on the legal absence of how much Thujon you could put in there. I don't know, but I will tell you that I used to get bootleg absinthe from this woman who, who cooked it in Switzerland, which is where it was invented, you know, the mm-hmm. Pernod. Pernod was at a staying in an inn in Switzerland, and he got a stomach trouble, and he went to the innkeeper, and she gave him absinthe, which she used for her cows. When the cows had stomach problems, they had this concoction made from all these different herbs that they distilled, 17, 18 different herbs that they made, and they fed it to their cows, and it, and it cured their stomach thing. So she gave it to Pernod, and he loved, he's like, I want to buy the recipe for this stuff. So he did, and he started Pernod. And then the absinthe craze took over, which happened to coincide with wine there was a blight on the grapes in france so all the wine production dropped to almost nothing so everybody started drinking absinthe so the whole reason why absinthe became illegal was because the wine people started importing their grapes from america they started making wine again but nobody was drinking it so (laughs) they started a campaign that absinthe was this that drove you nuts and made you hallucinate and you know and it was all bullshit it's all propaganda yeah. Um, so absinthe got this legendary sort of quality to it, mostly based on propaganda from the wine companies. Um, however, the Thujon absinthe is, if you have the real stuff, and back to the lady in Switzerland, whatever she, however she made it, this was the best absinthe I've ever had. You know, and I don't drink anymore. So you don't, but, you don't uh, have it anymore. Oh. Well, no, I, I haven't. This is this is years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, 
I'm not even sure who knows if she's even making the stuff anymore because now it became legal. Maybe she turned legal. That would be great. But <laughs> maybe she makes a profit now, a yeah, good profit, right? be. an even better profit. Who knows? You know, stuff was fun. you know what, what it did was it made you it made it got you drunk, but you were lucid. Mm-hmm. You know, when most people when you get drunk, you kind of get sloppy and weird and everything yeah. sort of busy and and it's sort of fumbly. But this was like having the, the drunk feeling, but being lucid at the same time. So there, it was a really peculiar and wonderful uh, feeling of sort of being drunk and yet not drunk at the same time. It was very unique. Um, I got to try it. And, and, <laughs> I yeah. got to try this. This is Yeah, it takes a couple, you know, it's very strong stuff. Most of it's sort of 68 proof or something. Oof, but uh, Jesus, but, Jesus. But, but it takes a couple of glasses, you know, but, but before you you, feel, you 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 get the absent feeling. I wouldn't say 3, but I'd say 2. Um with 3 be pushing it, do you think? Well, you know, you can you know, you, 4 would be pushing it. 4 would be pushing it. Okay. 4 would be okay. pushing it. But, well, uh, I, yeah, I think the hardest stuff I've ever had, because I, 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 drinking, I grew up in college on like 151 and there was like, right. you know, there was moonshine because I was in the South, like for college. So I, I feel like I could maybe do this. <laughs> I think I could, I could probably, I could handle this. Yeah. You know, I, I also partook in the Tallahassee moonshine. Oh, is that so? Yeah. From literally from the wood, the backwoods of Tallahassee. Oh God. And th- those yeah. are definitely experiences. I, yeah. Maybe not like the Jade Absinthe. Yeah. But I will test that I've had some experiences in my own. <laughs> yeah. Life. Yeah. We called it purple Jesus. You put grape juice and the 151. Or, oh know, man. That is uh that's much better than what I was doing. We were, pretty desperate we had nothing else in the, the kitchen and i was living with an alcoholic and uh and uh and we were mixing it with milk which was the bad idea and um <laughs> yeah. mixing it with milk yeah we had nothing else going on and uh so <laughs> that was pretty much the end of that one um but, uh, yeah, yeah it was it was a crazy it was a crazy time but we were all pretty much uh alcoholics at that point but you know um, part of it, you know, yeah, I get when I turned 40, I, uh, the switch went off and my body just said, Nope. You know, yeah. this is like the hang, it became just a diminishing return. So I gave it up. I don't drink anymore and I don't miss it. I don't miss it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting to that point myself. I'm well, I'm really closing in on 40 over here. And I, I pretty much, I just stopped drinking during the week at this point, too. It's just not even a beer. I, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. I just can't. It's just not worth it anymore. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'll smoke instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like Dreamcatcher is fun. <laughs> um, what about The Mist? Because this is, uh, you know, you're working with Frank Darabont here in this movie. And he's a huge Stephen King fan, and and he's a huge fan of you also. And I imagine the two of you really hit it off. Oh, we did. We're still pals. You know, we hang out. We still hang out. Frank moved up north, but um, when he get comes down, we, we get together for dinner. And uh, he's he's we were sort of fast friends. You know, I can't even really remember who introduced us. It feels like I've always been friends with Frank. He's just one of the one of those guys in in my life i 
really respect the guy, and uh, he he has uh, such a respectful quality when he's working with the crew. You know, he always says please and thank you, but it's mm. in just way that he feel you feel the gratitude emanating from the guy. And what that does is just makes everybody want to do a great job, you know. Yeah. And that kind of difference between a good director and a great director. A good director is competent and they know what to do and they sort of know where to put the camera and and they sort of, you know, know when a performance is sucking and when it's not. But a great director is tuned in to the emotions of everybody, you know, either he's emotionally intelligent and he's tuned into all the, you know, the, the feelings of these different people and they're all art artists and craftsmen, you know, that that's the great thing about uh, movies is, you know, everybody on the set is a craftsman or an artist, you know, and of course, you know, the Teamsters would argue with you about that, but I mean, <laughs> all the guys who are, who are, um, you know, on the stage with you and Frank, he, you just feel, everybody feels like they're part of uh, a creation, and everybody's sort of got a hand in it, and everybody, everybody's work is appreciated. And that did I lose you guys? Are you still there? No, no, no. We're, we're, here, we're, we're here. We're here. This is great. Well, I feel like with you, you just really want to work for Frank Darabont. That's what it sounds like when you're on set with him. You, you trust. Yeah. Him. yeah. You, yeah, you want to you do a big job, you know, and you'll go the extra mile, and everybody will. And uh, and he's got great taste, and he knows what a good performance is, and he knows what a great performance is. And you know, that's really the, the difference, you know. He's, he's um, it's a, it becomes, a, a di- you know, the better you get, the, the differences get smaller and smaller, you know, sort of the difference between a gold medal uh winner and a and a silver you know it's just very very fine but but it's there you know yeah i mean he has a small filmography but honestly what's <laughs> well, for every one of his movies are just either very good or great yeah. pretty much i mean especially yeah. the king adaptations it's pretty incredible yeah let me let me ask you this question about the mist because as you've probably become aware over the last 10 years the film ending is quite polarizing. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. How familiar were you with the original story before going into the the, the production? I was uh, familiar with it. I've read all the King short stories and kept up with it, and I was a big fan as a kid. And, you know, that's the other thing me and Frank had in common. We, we were all, we were both huge comic book fans. We were Bernie Wrightson fans, you know, and, and we had sort of, you know, the the, the old... 1950s EC comics, Tales from the Crypt, you know, uh, Vault of Horror, Weird Science Fantasy, all that great stuff we we engorged ourselves on. So we were both very literate in that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yes, I'd read all the King stuff, and the, the Mists was great. But Frankie tacked on this new ending, right, which has now become infamous. And... <laughs> The Weinstein come Bob Weinstein was financing it, and he said, "Listen, I'll give you twice the money. Make this movie if you change the ending." And Frank said, "No, you know." And, and it, we all kind of talked about it, but we all knew, you know, we we're like, "No, we got to shoot this ending. It's just, it's, you know, it's we can't imagine it any other way now that you've written it." And uh, so we took half the money that uh, Frank could have got, and we still, you know, and we made the movie. We had enough to make the movie. And we 
threw that ending on there. Now I tell you, it didn't help that the film opened on Thanksgiving weekend, okay? Which is the weekend that you take your family to go <laughs> after you I have a, Yeah, I have a story about this, actually, if I can tell you. I was, um, you. I was visiting family, and everybody wanted to go see a film that, that for, for Thanksgiving weekend. And so everybody wanted to go see Enchanted, which I believe I guess must have come out yeah, that month. Yeah, it was the same weekend. And I said, no, I'm going to go see The Mist. You know, I love Frank Darabont, Thomas Jane, Stephen King. I'm familiar with the story. Love the story. I got to see it. So I went to go see The Mist by myself. <laughs> we, I left the theater and my, you know, the rest of my family was just ecstatic. They had just seen this wonderful, enchanting movie called Enchanted. And I was just shell-shocked at the beginning <laughs> of this movie. I, I mean, I, rem- I don't remember every theatrical or theater experience, but I just vividly remember going out into that parking lot and I guess it was South Carolina and just yeah. kind of waiting for them to to get the car going so we can go home. <laughs> I, lo- I love the ending. I think it's I so. an incredible – and like you said, I mean, I can't imagine it – I can't imagine the film ending any other way. And I am really glad that Darabont stuck to his guns and shot it for less because it, it pays off. Yeah, and Steve, we had dinner with Steve King, and, uh, and he said – Man, he said, if I'd have thought of that ending, I'd have written it myself. He loved it. You know, it's brutal. I thought that I thought that was a great compliment to Frank. You know, definitely. Yeah, basically said, I wish I'd thought of that because I'd done it. Um, and it was great. You know, I loved it. I loved you know, but I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan and and all that stuff. So for the guys who are into that sort of stuff and the twist endings of the old EC comics and then the twisted tales that came out in the eighties for guys who are fans of the tales from the crypt TV show and the outer limits and, uh, you know, twilight zone, like they love it, you know, and for people who aren't for people who can sort of take or leave that kind of stuff, they're like, what the fuck you asshole. <laughs> yeah, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. Like you said, it was an interesting release strategy. <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, but you're that, right, though. It, it really is. It really does cater to the the readers that grew up like to that. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it reminded me of um, just how the cruelty of some of the the endings that would be in the Twilight Zones. Like I remember as a kid, just being frustrated by, you know, like this the the glasses breaking in in the in the infamous episode where you know he has all this time to read, or even the ending with uh, with um, was it, it's a good day or um, with the kid that sends everyone to the cornfields. Like that ending is like it's a good life terrifying. Or like yeah. I think that's a big portion of of horror. Like I think you should be walking out of the theater terrified instead of you know feeling like everything is going to be okay. <laughs> Uh, the whole point it's an exorcism you know of our and the good horror always is a comment on us as human beings you know and and then it raises the question of what it means to be a human being and that's the good stuff that's what sticks with you and that's why the genre exists you know or at least why it should exist no well i think we both agree on that i got a technical question about the mist um after the film's release, Frank Darabont ended up uh, releasing a black and white version. Were you aware that he had any plans of doing that? Did he maybe want to do oh. that originally, or how did that come about? Do you know? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it, I wanted to. I wanted to mention that that's my favorite version because mm-hmm. as the um, it, it, it just brings. Well, first of all, the creatures look way better in black and white. Yeah. Yes. And, 
and the but the tone of you know it really is it really does play and Frank wrote it like a, one of those 1950s uh, morality movies you know it's like you know it, it's got that feeling of the movies that were pretty popular in the 50s where it was sort of these parables about about society and they were sort of morality plays and the black and white version is the best version of the film and I didn't know he's going to do the black and white version in fact I I'm not I think he just got the idea when he was in the editing room oh by the way I sat in the editing room with Frank for weeks because I was learning how to direct myself I wanted to direct I got this little straight to DVD movie uh, to direct and so I was like Frank you know uh, I'd love to come down. And he goes, please, come on down. And, I, and so I showed up day, uh, and I sat in the back of the you know, editing suite and just watched these guys work. And I learned, it was like film school for me. I learned so much. And Frank said, yeah. you know, I've been a lot of guys down to the editing room. And you are the first guy that's actually showed up. You know? And he goes, I'm impressed. Um, but it, for me, it was, uh, it was gold, man watching them put the thing together and then watching them put a scene together and then take it all apart and put it together in a different way. It was really, uh, really, really good. It was gold. So I, that's what those memories from The Mist was, you know, sort of sitting in the edit with Frank in the back, you know, flying on the wall. It's just from a behind-the-scenes point of view, I, I know that Frank Darabont used a lot of people that he worked with on The Shield, so did it have a, did it have almost like a, a television or like a documentary type quality to it when you were filming it? I mean, how many cameras was he using at, at, at a time? Yeah, he did. He had the idea because we only had half the budget. Um, he's like, okay, well, how the fuck am I going to shoot this? So he'd done the episodes of The Shield, so he imported that, in, that whole crew, mm-hmm. and they all came in, and they shot it sort of just like they would shoot an episode of The Shield, which allowed us to move really fast. They had at least three cameras. Maybe there were more. Mm -hmm. But I think three. And uh, we just had three cameras going all the time. And they had these little, you know, we're shooting in the supermarket, which has those linoleum floors. So they had these chairs with, with rollers on them. And the cameraman would sit in these sort of stools and, and somebody would sort of like slide them around. And I thought that was a great, great way to, uh, you know, like screw the dolly and, uh, you know, didn't use too much steady cam either, but it was this, these rolling stools that the cameramen would sit on and they'd sort of roll around the aisles. I thought that was a really neat way to do it. But yeah, I mean, so I think it was partly budget and partly just sort of the way he chose to, the style of the directing, you know, that that movie was going to be almost like a verite kind of feel to it. You know, I mean, personally, not my favorite um, handheld stuff is not my favorite stuff. But Frank was real calm with the handheld. You know, it wasn't too shaky and all that weird shit. But man, <laughs> we hey, Remember where everything on television was turned into this handheld, shaky, weird shit. That was brutal. Uh, just awful, you know. Yeah. So you're not like, a Born Identity fan, pretty much. <laughs> well, that that's sort of the. I guess that's the best version of a handheld movie. That mm-hmm. that film does have a kinetic energy that works for that movie. And no, I still don't like it. So yeah, the best <laughs> version. 
up a, a handheld, I still, it's just not my cup of tea, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm this weird shaky person behind, you know, like watching yeah. all this. Um, uh, it drives me nuts, but Frank, you know, like sort of the smooth version of handheld, um, oh, and absolutely. the works, you know, the, the choices that Frank made work for that film, you know, so I, I hats off to him. Earlier, you'd mentioned that you had a uh, dinner with uh, Stephen King, and I, I, I wondered, um, had you met him during Dreamcatcher also, or was that your first time meeting him? Gosh, you know, now I now I can't remember. I mean, I, he might have. I don't think he came to to the set of Dreamcatcher. I I don't remember that. But I, so yeah, I would say that it's probably the first time I met. Uh, King was at dinner there. You know, it was, it was uh, me and Darabont and I think Greg Nicotero and. Uh, oh wow! Great, great, great team. <laughs> great it, team. It was it was memorable. You know, the guy, the guy is the most sort of down down home sort of like normal, unassuming. It's all like the cliche of like a serial killer. You know, you'd be like, yeah, just, <laughs> you heard it here so, first. I mean, growing up though as a as a as a King fan, that must have been a huge, huge experience for you. Mm Hmm. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, that's 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 awesome. (laughs) Affords a few moments like that, you know. When I was shooting '61 with Billy Crystal, I played Mickey Mantle in this baseball movie. They inducted Fame a couple years, a few years ago. But uh, Muhammad Ali came down to the set, and so it was me and Billy Crystal and a few people with Muhammad Ali and his wife. And, you know, that was another sort of once-in-a-lifetime kind of, you know, uh, experience. Uh, I can't imagine. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's actually oh, Mickey Mantle's birthday today. Oh, yeah. Hey, it is. love it. Fantastic. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. What? I, I know that because he shares the same birthday as uh, as my mother, so that's how I'm able to remember both of those birthdays. Yeah. Oh, that's a good sign. 1922 come out, came out on Mickey Mantle's birthday. I love it. That's a that great. That is very really cool. That is pretty yeah. cool. Well, 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 speaking of 1922, that's the the next film we were uh, talking about. I. You know, I had spoken to uh, Zach Hilditch uh, a couple of days ago, and he actually said that um, your family has uh, like has a history with farming, and that was kind of like that background helped inform your performance a little bit. And I was wondering if you would be able to digress on that. 
Now he's lying. <laughs> a city boy. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But I do have my mom's from Alabama. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, she grew up in a little small, very small town called Brundage, and it was really tiny Alabama town in the fifties. It was you can imagine, you know, the black folks lived on one side of the street, and the white folks lived on the other. And as far as I know, it's still that way down there. In Brundage, it's halfway in between Dothan and Montgomery, so it's a you know one of them one horse towns, you know, yeah. one hard store and one grocery store and one garage and all. so um, I spent summers down there and you know ran in so I'm down there in the deep south and you run into folks that you won't find anywhere else in the world. They're very unique people um very fucking interesting and i i i feel bad that most of this stuff is getting lost now it's just progress you know but what's happening yeah. is with digital and everybody's sort of becoming connected and blending in so i had this great dialect coach and i need want to do this uh this accent you know i wanted to get down this authentic accent and so she sent me, so she started digging around, and she's one of the best. There's two or three that are the great dialect coaches, and she's one of them. Her name's Jessica Drake. And she called me up, and she's like, you know what, man? This is really slim pickings because the dialects are becoming lost. Everybody's sort of blending in. There are no modern people to study to get that authentic Nebraskan accent. Mm-hmm. We had to dig back into the old tapes. We had to go. We had to go find old interviews with like old Southern writers, and uh, I, f- I, f- I forget the people that we found. But we found, but we did find, you know. Uh, but it was very small. There was like two people that I was using to recreate an authentic 1922 Nebraskan accent, which is nothing like the Nebraskan accent of today, and that's happening all over the country. Where you know we're we're losing some of that regional uh, dialects and every everything's sort of starting to blend together, um, and I found that to be kind of fascinating. I, I didn't know that before I before I started working on uh, 1922, but uh, Alabama, you know they <laughs> had real Alabama, and uh, I mean you could barely under, understand what the hell they were saying. Um, and then I, I remember my mom, she was. She was chuffed because when at four years old, I started imitating them, you know, like right when I got down there within a day, I had a al- thick Alabama accent and all the, <laughs> all the uh, adults were always laughing at me, you know, cause I would, I just started talking like the way they were talking instantly. And I guess that was sort of the first indication that I was going to, you know, grow up and be an actor. Didn't even know it, you know, but uh, it was sort of that that mimic that mimic gene or whatever that is that mirroring gene uh was pretty strong in me um but yeah they (laughs) they weren't uh they weren't farmers but they certainly lived out there in the you know middle of the middle of nowhere sort of like you know sort of so so yes my grandfather is uh in the movie you know i i basically based wilford james on my grandfather's he's he's dead uh he's been dead for quite a while 
probably 10 years now, but, uh, but he was quite the character, man. And yeah, I mean, my brother, my brother saw an ad or something, uh, for 1922, we were eating dinner, uh, last week and he said, damn, man, I saw you in this thing. You just like, you know, uh, Gramps. I was like, <laughs> I was well, like how, let me, let me ask you about about the role because how early on um, in the process were you thinking about how how you would take this character? Like how early on before you realized, oh, I could maybe pay tribute to my grandfather by uh, taking this role? Well, you know, it didn't happen until like the night before I was starting to shoot. I was working on this accent. Wow. And I got it real, you know, and the accent was it was good, but it wasn't, it didn't have any flavor. You know, I was just doing this Nebraskan accent as sort of me. And I was like, this isn't working. You know, it's not, it's not having, so I was just tossing and turning and thinking and going over the lines. We're shooting the following day and something just bubbled up in the back of my brain. I was like, Holy shit, this is grandpa. You know, this is, guy you know and and then everything just clicked into place and and the the way that he talked you know the sort of like clamped style of talking where he sort of half of his mouth is frozen and and uh all that's my grandpa you know and the way he would carve his apple and sort of you know with a pocket knife he was always carving something with a pocket knife and putting it in his mouth Sort of that. That's the whole that whole thing, you know. How did that, how did you it, keep your mouth shut for so? Long? I mean, like I that that was the while watching the movie, I just kept going like, oh my god, his teeth have got to be killing him. <laughs> like it just seems like yeah. you just had it up so sh- like wired shut almost. Was it distracting? Because I was no, 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 not at all, not at all. I just kept like thinking like because I know that I mean I've just I've seen pretty much every one of your movies. I was wondering, I was like, Jesus, like how like that must have taken so much like um, endurance (laughs) in some respects. Yeah, I don't know. You get you you got to hook it into something emotional, you know. I mean, for for some for a choice like that to work, at least for me, you you got to find. Uh, an anchor that that is an emotional anchor, you know. So it can't just be sort of an affectation because if you people who have ticks like that, my belief is that they stem from some deep-seated emotional experience or idea that they got about the world through the experiences of being alive. They've come to some conclusions about some stuff and it makes them feel a certain way and then that's where the the tick comes from you know or quality and it could be a way that they walk it could be something that they do with their hand it could be the way they comb their fucking hair it could be anything sort of that that's a personal expression of sort of who they are yeah but from you can find an emotional anchor for it and it becomes something that you need to do instead of something that you're doing, you know, because you think that the character might do it. It it becomes a need for you to hang on to something, you know? So if you just fucking, if you got, if you've buried your anger so deep inside you that you don't even know it's there anymore, then it just sort of like, you don't, it sort of clamps down. Something's got to clamp down and hang on to it, you know, otherwise it'll, burst out and you'll fucking slaughter your wife in the middle of the night so oh boy so that's 
Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. I mean, this is obviously a very intense movie. It's an intense performance. Do you go, I guess, full method with this? Or do you, are you able to turn it on and turn it off? I mean, I don't know how that would work for this type of a, uh, of a performance. What in hell did you tell you? Uh, he, uh, I mean, we had, I had read previously that it was, that there was some sort of method, um, you know, tendencies there, but he basically, I mean, he actually said, and one thing that really rang true when I was watching it is that you had been looking, uh, through a lot of like old photographs, um, which is interesting because one of the things that we discussed on the review episode was there's that shot of the, the family, the family portrait, and Very your, good. Fa- your right. face in that shot is so old fashioned. It, it's, it was almost like it was terrifying almost because I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it's like You're Tom Jane went back in time. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was uh, crazy. I, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I'm so happy. It makes me so happy that that uh, at least somebody picked up on that because I worked hard on that. You know, it's yeah, because it's whenever you do those photos. You know, you, you can get the quality, you know, with a computer now. You can make a photo look like it's from 1922. But the people in it always look sort of like they're, you know, like on Facebook. Yeah. And and it doesn't work, you know, because people were different. You know, they had harder lives and they were thinking different shit. And they were, and they were a little suspicious of this fucking box that exactly. you had in front of. And, uh... And so it was all that, you know, and yeah, looking at the old photographs, you know, that's so helpful when you, it's all we have really of times like that, just sort of before film, there's a little bit of film, but most of it's all these old, these old photos, you know, and then if you go back even further, then you got to go to paintings and paintings are hard because people are generally posing for paintings. So Mm -hmm. you got to sort of find, and then you got to go into literature and, uh, and and documented accounts, you know, of, of the period. And you really got to get into how people lived and how people lived is reflected in how they look, you know, what they look like, what they're thinking about when they take that photo. I'm so happy you picked up on that because I, I was pretty proud of that myself. I was like, yeah, there he is. There's that yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah, right. So seriously, it was it was phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Well, you've mentioned um, Zach Hilditch in kind of tongue-in-cheek ways, I think, so far. What was it like working with him? I mean, you've worked with veteran directors before, and Zach Hilditch is relatively you know, new to the to the profession. How was it like working with him? Yeah, he's he's a newer guy, you know. He's got uh, – he wrote the script, okay? Mm-hmm. And the script was – it was intelligent, you know. He did an intelligent adaptation, and uh, – that says something, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Writing is not directing. You know, you got a a lot of writers who can really write, and then they can't direct, and then and then uh, you know, uh, and the opposite. Yeah. A lot of writers, yeah. a lot of directors can't write, but but you know, you a guy like Darabon who who writes so well, um, and also pretty much directs what you see on the page, and I think that's the ability you know that the writing itself you can kind of tell um how a, a guy is going to it's up to a certain extent and not not all the way but you can kind of get a flavor for how a guy is going to direct it but you know there's there's a way of writing that's sort of visual where you sort of see the events unfold and that's how the script was written so i figured 
that he wasn't going to be a, a terrible director, you know. I, I, and I, right, you know. Yeah. Guy did a guy did a good job, and it, and it was sort of you could sort of feel it in the script that it, it was it had a visual quality to it, and you, so you could sort of see the movie that he was writing. And I think that's the difference, you know, when you're looking for when you're looking at at scripts, you know, a script can be really well written, but it's more literary, you know, yeah. and then so not too sure if this if this guy's directing it you're not too sure what he's going to do with it but i thought that he captured the story and the beats of the story in a a way that you know we could get it on film and we had a good dp and uh and we had enough yeah we good and it didn't look like video, right? Did you, no, when you thought, that was, no. It, it looked like a very like um, it reminded me a lot of uh, There Will Be Blood, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of the Coen's films um, in the yeah. sense that it, it it just it's just gorgeous. I mean, there's some. It's very patient too. That's what I like about the film is that it doesn't it's yep. it doesn't it doesn't speed up or anything. It's just it takes its time. The use of silence and then also Mike Patton's score is just phenomenal. Also, um, phenomenal definitely see that in both the, the filmmaking and the way it looks and the score you, it's, there will be blood all over the fucking thing yeah yeah uh, inspired by that you know I mean I I um, you know I, you gotta be careful you know you wanna you can ins- being inspired by a certain particular film that has a very specific quality and tone can inspire you yeah. You, hopefully, hopefully you want to do you want to take that and then do something a little different with it that fits your story a, l- a little better. Oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it does. I haven't seen the movie. I don't watch the stuff that I'm in anymore. I used to when I was younger, but um, you know, I, I, a lot of a lot of guys that I admire don't don't watch themselves. And I I think you get to a point when you're younger, you can learn a lot by watching, you know, what you've done and you can sort of put the pieces together and it's very helpful. Yeah. But you get to a point where it just becomes vanity and, and you're just, you know, you're just looking, Oh, why'd they use that take and not that take? And, and, uh, and all that shit's out of your hands and you don't have any control over it. And the movie that I made is in my head and the script that I, you know, performance and all that, that's all one thing, but it's never the thing that you see on, on screen. Cause it's somebody else picking the takes and putting the thing together. So, uh, I don't watch, I don't watch, uh, this stuff, but I hear no, I, my kid, I took my kid to Austin and, I, you know, she's 14. So, and we were, we hooked up in Austin. She's living in New York right now. So we both flew to Austin and we got to hang out for the weekend. And I said, listen, and she, you don't have to watch this. I'm not. And she goes, oh, I'm just going to watch 10 minutes and, uh, and then I'll meet you in the lobby. And she never came out. <laughs> uh, so she came out like, dad, that was really good. I forgot it was you. So that was cool. So I would I take that's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good sign. Done. Based on her uh, critique, I'd, I, I guess pretty good movie. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if it keep a fourteen-year-old's attention, I guess you know it's not too slow. I guess it moves, right? Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say it's that's interesting. It does because uh, it is. I mean, it's a very classic style of film. I would say it reminds me of. Um, 
gosh, I want to say more of like seventies filmmaking just because it's, it's so it's deliberate in its pace. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And so like, that's, I mean, Hey, you gotta, you gotta, um, you got a smart kid. <laughs> what can I say? You know, I, yeah. I, 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 I do wonder if like a bunch of other teenagers would be, um, well, I actually no, I think they would because it's so, it's so chilling. That's the thing also. It's just like the minute it starts, you're just like, Oh, okay. This is, we're in for a pretty fucking dark ride and this is not going to, it's very, uh, this is going to keep strangling me over and over again. Well, it's, it's very, I think even King's talked about how it's very similar in a lot of ways to the telltale heart. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's definitely prevalent in the film and the, the story oh, yeah. it's based on. Yeah. Oh, it's one of my favorites. So you would say that today people don't, really you'd say there's a difference between most films made today and the style that they were made in the 70s you'd say oh. that film changed to a point where if you make a film in the style of 70s you, you know you can really or more classical style of filmmaking you can really tell oh absolutely i i think that's more a, a condemnation on producers and directors i think there are a lot, most people today would prefer to make a film like 1922 or a film that kind of has a 70s style to it, a verite style to it even. Yeah. But no, now it's, it's just, you know, we, we talk about this all the time on our podcast that a lot of these producers are just concerned with making $100 million movies to make a billion dollars. There's no middle line anymore. It's very no, strange. No. We kind of lost that along the way. I don't know. We're, we're from the well, outside. I'm not sure how you look at it from the inside. But we do have now Netflix and a yeah. couple other program programmers that um are allowing that are still allowing these kind of films to get made i i'd say that that you, you're right you're not gonna get a theatrical movie like this anymore you know in the 70s 1922 would have come out in the theaters and it would be in the theaters for two months and people yep. would go see it but uh not now you know now you now you watch you you, you catch it on the on the box and that's where this kind of stuff is gone but i'm just glad that it's there you know I'm yeah glad me, too. me too well that's that's the thing i mean you know netflix and amazon kind of get knocked on a little bit because I, I guess people are afraid of you know the the movie going experience going away but the bottom line is like you said we would not get 1922 if it was not for a netflix or or an amazon yeah. production you know yeah i mean so or, or any any independent a lot of independent films i mean that's that's the sad reality of it i mean there's a lot of filmmakers out there that don't want to make movies anymore i mean like david lynch has said that he's done because he, there's just no market for it and or the you know for his type of movies but i think that's changing i think like yeah you're right i mean i, I think it's the streaming giants are definitely going to be taking you know the lead in that Seems like you. Know, by the way, speaking of David Lynch, I don't watch a lot of television, so yeah. I, my my opinion is not going to count for a whole lot. But in my opinion, uh, the new Twin Peaks is the best thing I've ever seen on television. I agree. That, I oh my gosh! Fucking, between the replacements and Twin Peaks, yeah. you are my favorite person in the world. I can't handle this. This is <laughs> this is killing me. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of. Uh, of the of the Twin Peaks revival, I, every Sunday I I, uh, I ran to my television. I felt like I was back in the '90s again, where I was. I, I didn't even DVR it. I just was like, I have to watch it live. I want to watch it right now. Like it was great. I. It's a great show. I would agree. But it also it's groundbreaking. You know. Yeah. It, uh, again, once again, the fucking guy is like three steps ahead of everybody else. I mean, watching that guy sweep the floor for like four <laughs> minutes. 
to Green Onions. Only yeah. Lynch, and you're on board or you're not. And I was on board. I think yeah. we all were. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, I guess so. You know, it really kind of separates the men from the boys that uh, the Twin Peaks. You know, you're like, because you know, the boys are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and uh, and the men are like, shut up. Yeah. It's like I can't believe what I'm watching right now. And I'm yeah, it. I mean, like, I mean, that whole part eight was insane—the nuclear bomb. I mean, Jesus. Oh my uh, God! Yeah, that's my favorite uh, episode. That whole sequence is all silent. You know, there's no no words. It's all montage, and it's yeah. some of the best some of the best stuff I've ever seen. I mean, I'd pay money to see that shit in the theater. I I only wish, and I'm not sure if this is true, but you know how they made fair walk with me as a theatrical that I would fucking love if they did the same thing for the new twin peaks. And I'm sure they're yeah. think, thinking about it or at least somebody had to have talked about it. Like let's do the movie of this. And God, I, I, <laughs> I'd pay well, double the story is, that shit. The story was in my opinion, still pretty open-ended. So you could keep the story going if you oh, decided yeah. to, you know, yeah. if, there was no bow at the very end. For better or worse, yeah, but, uh, you, yeah know. you could go anywhere. I mean, you you could go before, you know, you could see before. You could go for to before all that shit happened. You could do a kind of prequel yeah. movie. Um, it's uh, which would be great. It's the greatest. Yeah. It's the greatest. I just, I just, that was just my mind is blown. And and also, I hope, I can only hope that the new Twin Peaks inspires filmmakers to sort of take off in that direction you know to sort of like he sort of paved a new road out into the middle of the wilderness you know so it was like hey let's let's go down that way like it opens up new ideas and new new story ideas and new filmmaking ideas and sort of new beats that you can get away with it just opens up all these doors and i really hope that people um People follow some of that and start walking through I mean, some of the doors. Like, yeah, it, it wasn't a ratings juggernaut, but it was a conversation starter. Like more yeah. people are talking about that than a I lot mean, of other Showtime shows. So I do hope that inspires these executives to just kind of let people do what they want to do yeah. and not be so mm-hmm. hands on. Yeah, you know, which I think they will. I mean, I, th- I think that's where it's going to be going uh, at this point. Well, let me tell you that the most successful. You know, I've worked with HBO and Netflix. I my. I, you could argue that they're the most successful television producers. They've produced the most high quality stuff. And they both, um, in, my, in my experience with both of them, is that they left us almost completely alone. Um, and HBO, they were so hands off. You know, they gave a few notes. But then it was up to you to uh, execute them or not. And the same with Netflix. We never heard from them. They just give you the money and they say, go do it. And generally, that's always a, a good bet. If they're picking good material, if, they ha- if they're hiring people who they think are talented, then they let them go off and do it. And they don't, whereas the other networks, they're kind of struggling and they produce real crap. It's because they're just, you know, you're getting all these executive notes they're hanging on they're like well we need this you know you'll get all these notes you know we get this demographic yeah. and that demographic and you got to fill that and we need a scene and there hasn't been an explosion in 10 minutes and, you know you get all that kind of crap and that generally yeah. just drag drags everything down but the two most successful companies are the guys that leave you that hire good people and leave them alone so i'll yeah, tell you that's something. true well you said um you had mentioned obviously your work on hbo you did 61 and you also did Hung, which yeah. – yeah. Mike, did you watch right. all of Hung? I watched Loved all of it. Hung. All Loved of it. it. 
loved it. And I was, I was really, I was really, cool. just, I was sad that to see it gone. I mean, it was, well, I, so was your gateway into Twin Peaks because Jane Adams was in Hong and Twin Peaks, or I'm not sure how close oh, you were right. still with Jane Adams. No, Hung's no, I, no, I just suddenly she showed up. I was like, shit, that's Jane Adams. God damn it. Why didn't <laughs> David Lynch call me? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, because both of you were terrific on Hung. You know, loved. I, yeah, that, I, I do miss it's a great I show. Um, but I, mm. I, I guess um, looking the, uh, the name head. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the name I was great. I just want to say that the, the name of Hung uh, is what threw threw me off. I kept I turned it down twice because I was like, "Come on, guys, you're gonna do a show called fucking <laughs> Hung? It's ridiculous, you know? It's it, we're Americans. We don't want to talk about sex, you know." We just yeah. like we're so silent and so closed off about sex that a title that's you know like that is going to put people off. And I still think that it did. I think that the audience that found it all loved it. But I think most people just were like, "Huh, I'm not. But don't put that on." <laughs> and uh, and I think that's too bad. But uh, I think the reason why it got canceled. Well, we'll get into that another time. Yeah, but uh, but it had a good audience and um, people were, uh, you know, uh, good writing, yeah, really good writing. That's what finally drew me in. I was like, these writers are just terrific. You got to do this. Well, the thing I'm is, I mean, I, I know you were you were a gigolo on the show, but I mean, there was a lot of heart on that show. You yeah. know, in addition to everything else that was going on, yeah. I think that's what kept me coming back. At least there was a lot of yeah, you know, no, that's the whole deal. That was it. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, if you, uh, we have a, just a few more questions, just uh, just kind of like most most yeah. of post film stuff. If you could appear in any more King adaptations, which ones would you choose? I mean, are there, there, hmm. this could be even just like what are your, some of your favorite stories? Also, oh man, that's a that's a good question. You know, I've been looking at King stuff. I was like, God, you know, because Hilditch was like, shit, I'm so surprised that, like, this thing came out, this book came out five or six years ago, and yet nobody grabbed this, uh, um, this story. Like, he was like, wow. Because they had picked a couple other ones from that collection, you know, but not this one. Yeah, and they'd done, like, every every other story. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, is uh, so. I mean, he's written his his film his a his filmography is insane. But yeah. the um, the uh, short stories, you know, I would look for a, for a short story. You know, you might be able to even like read like some of them were great books and they kind of crapped out in the um, in the movie department. You know, like yeah. they were terrific, and but then they, you know, then they just turned out real bad. Um, so it might be nice to redo, you know, one of them. You know, take one of those old ones from the eighties and and redo it. You know. Yeah, we did um, a big list of um, the best, the worst, the best Stephen King adaptations, and there were a lot, unfortunately, at the uh, <laughs> the lower tier. It so gets, there's it a couple really movies ugly. ripe to be remade. You know? Yeah, 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 and you might be able to find one of these great sort of older ones that have been made, and because it's it's pretty well been pretty well picked over, and all the King stuff. I'm sure there's stuff out there maybe that that hasn't been, but it's uh, you know people. He's got that dollar where you you pay a buck. Oh, the dollar baby, yeah. 
Yeah, we've, we've thought about doing one. We've we wanted to do one uh, ourselves actually, just because there's one of my one of my buddies actually did one for Survivor type, um, and it was really good actually. Uh, and that, but it's a, that's like an easier one to do because it's just a guy on a rock. Um, <laughs> so some of them are pretty easy to adapt, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, wait, what's it, the one on the rock? That sounds cool. What is yeah, it? it's called. Oh God, I can't remember what it's off of. I think it's off of. Um, you know, skeleton crew? You talking about survival? survival? You're, yeah, so I'm pretty sure it's on in a skeleton crew. Skeleton crew, yeah. yeah. Um, because that that's one's he he's basically he has a bunch of drugs with him, and he starts using the drugs <laughs> to kind of make sure that he doesn't have enough pain. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he starts using it, right. so he's like, I think he starts cutting his own limbs off because he starts starving. He's starving, so he starts eating himself um, to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, nice. oh I remember this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that so. would be cool. Yeah. Um, there's one movie. There's a story that he wrote. I think he wrote it with his with his son. It's called In the Tall Grass. Do you know this one? Yes, that's a short. I think he did that with Joe Hill, I believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think I think they wrote it together, and uh, I think it was only published online. I think, am I right? Uh, maybe. Yeah, it and was then, like an e-release or something, like an e-book or something. Yeah, it was like, like one that. of the first big. Oh no, that wasn't the first. I think he did another one. That was the, the plant. plant. Right, plant right, yeah, right. But it was it was an e-book type of thing. It's a novella, and anyway, mm. this is pretty good. Uh, that's the one that I would do. You know, uh, actually, oh, nice. somebody somebody did write a script. Of in the tall grass, and they sent it to me, um, and uh, I, I thought this this guy did a terrific adaptation. You know, he changed it a little, but just the general story of this you know couple driving through the middle of nowhere, and they pull over into this church parking lot, and they've got some trouble, and then the the woman hears somebody calling in the tall grass, some kid, you know. So the guy runs off to get something, and the chick sort of wanders down into the grass and she keeps going and she can't find this kid and he's calling then his voice changes it goes way over there so she goes over there and then she can't find her way out and then she hears her husband like where are you and she's like i'm in the grass like follow the sound of my voice but they can't find each other so he wanders into the tall grass now they're both lost and they can't get out Mm -hmm. and then there's folks that sort of start you know, they they meet some people in there that have been in there for God knows how long, and it just it just gets wonderful. Oh, I and that, I, that that could be that could just be great. And then some fucking guy shows up. You could tell he's sort of like a tourist, and he's sort of got this glint in his eye, and he's like, "I know how to get out. You know, follow me." And you know, and he just turns out to be a raving psychopath. And you know, there's this giant rock in the middle of the tall grass. And if you touch the rock, then you, your reality just shatters, and then you're just lost in this other, other world. And so they're just trying to get everybody to touch the rock. It's just fucking great. Yeah, that should definitely be made. <laughs> That's yeah. Please, I, uh, please do your best to see that that eventually comes out. Yeah, be terrific. Because yeah. we'd love to see you in more work. Period. And obviously. Any more key adaptations you can get in, the better. Yeah. Well, I mean, you a good record, right? We did the Mist, and now in '22, I mean, they're both they're both solid pieces of work. So I guess I got a good track record. It'll be nice to do another really good one. Definitely. Hey, well, we're not gonna lie. I mean, we were reading the Stan, and we kept talking about uh, Stu Redman. And look, I mean, Gary Sinise did an amazing job in the miniseries, but we're not going to lie. Like we were the whole time we were thinking like Tom Jane, like this is <laughs> like, this is a, this is a role yeah. for Tom Jane. Like, you know, when, um, 
When did they you know, did they make when did they make that? That well, was in the mid nineties. That was in mid nineties. They're right. definitely gonna be and making a stand. The stand's gonna happen redoing again. It? They are yeah, they're talking it. about possible limited series. It's gonna definitely you know, after the the massive success of it, all these movies are gonna start coming <laughs> yeah, in. So uh, get right. ready to start grabbing yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. A okay. new revival, yeah. I should find out what happened to that in the tall grass script. I'll look yeah. into it. I'll, I'll no, look into it and see what's see what's going on with that. I'm sure he'd he'd probably have a better time financing it now that it's come out. What did you guys think of it? Did you love it? I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I really did. I thought that they, you know, it's so hard to get kids that are like, you know, not annoying sometimes on screen, and, yeah. and they're real. Yeah, and they felt real to me. I mean, I, th- I thought they. That reminded me of growing up, and uh, and I kind of grew up in that era also. So it was like it was definitely it definitely hit you know connected. I'm I'm interested to see how they do the second one, um, and because yeah, it's going to be set in modern times. Perfect. You know they they set up the kids so well. You know the scene at the school and the fat kids got yeah. the paper the paper diorama and he drops yes yeah. chick. Love that scene. It's like and the, the guy running by and burping in that guy's ear. You're like, oh yeah, that's fucking school. Oh yeah, yes. you know, so finding that shit is the key to yeah, creating. It, it's yeah. so hard to find a, a really solid child actor and to find seven solid child actors was a minor miracle. So that's that to yeah. me was the film's biggest success. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's all the director, you know. I think with kids, you know, especially. I mean, you're right. You, the kid ha- does have to have some natural ability, but but it's very much in the way that you work with kids. You know, it's like if you can set up an environment where you're not asking a kid to hit his mark and look at some guy and say a line. If you're doing that, you're fucked. You know, you're just gonna yeah. get a shitty performance. Doesn't matter how good the kid is. But if you set up an environment where you give the kids something to do and you sort of like let them go and you kind of chase them with the camera, essentially, then you, then you're going to capture something real because kids are real, you know, they're way more real yeah. than grownups. So the trick is you got to let them be who they are and what they are and capture it. It's more like shooting animals than it is shooting actors. Hmm. Uh, and if you, if you can do that, you're going to get great performances. And if, when you don't do that, you know, the, the kids don't have this. They haven't been doing it for 20 years. They don't have the skills to be able to uh, to deliver in the sort of grown up way. But if you shoot, if you pretend that they're sort of like mini apes, you know, so, <laughs> then 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 you, then you then you're gonna then you're gonna score. Yeah, I mean that goes back to what you said earlier about you know you can have a, a terrific script, you can have a, a great piece of source material, but all that matters is how the thing gets shot at the end of the day. Yeah, you know. Well, yeah, learning that, learning the language, you know, is a big deal. Yeah. Studying the greats, John Ford, Howard Hawks, and then Spielberg, and then Owen Brothers. Learning the language is the key if you're interested in filmmaking. It's all about the language, you know. Every shot is an emotional, it has an emotional, it should do something emotionally to the audience. And when you watch King and when you watch the Coen Brothers, Every shot does something to you. You're like, oh, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it's not something you can necessarily express uh, in words. It's an emotional um, sort of string that's being pulled. And, and that's the difference between a good movie that pulls you in and a movie where you're just kind of like, eh, you know, two guys talking, okay. But 
and it's all in how you, it's all in where you put the camera and, and, and why, you know? So learning, yeah. learning the language is, it, it's an amazing film language and it is it's a language. It's like studying French. Yeah. So, well, I don't, I'll just, we just like to say, Mr. Jane, thank you so much once again for yeah. uh, taking time out and speaking to us. I want to get a couple of things straight here. You said, if I'm ever going to do absinthe, it's the Jade Absinthe, is that correct? And the Edouard, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you pick up a bottle of Jade, the the, the company is Jade, Jade Liqueurs, I think, but it's Jade, you'll okay. find it online. And okay. Jade, like the stone. And uh, they got a couple of different ones to pick from. You know, the Edouard is great, and, you know, it's been a while. So that's, that's the only one I remember, but there's a couple other ones that are, that are great. I think there's one called New Orleans or something like that. Yeah, we're definitely gonna look for it. We, we will definitely look be looking for it. And Better. everybody out there, yep. it's on. Nineteen twenty-two is on Netflix right now, starring <laughs> the one and only Thomas Jane. So once again, thank you so much for spending your Friday evening talking to us. Yeah, this and is great. Hopefully, you get this uh, this King story going here. Let's let's make it happen. Yeah, seriously, yeah. for that one, that would be awesome. Right on. Would be awesome. Thanks, fellas. Well, Good talking to you. Quite remember, uh, check check out that uh, I don't care's record. I think you'll like it. It's yeah. uh, it's pretty good. Oh, I'm gonna go look it up. I'm gonna go look it up on iTunes right now. Yeah. Awesome. Westerberg. Awesome. I wanna put I wanna yeah. put some Westerberg on and smoke a cigar. That's gonna be my That Friday. sounds like a perfect Friday night. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a great one. We'll talk you to you too. soon, hopefully. Bye man. You bet. Anytime. Bye. Well, we told you it was a great interview. Yeah. What a wild ride, huh? What a wild Friday night where I'm couldn't be more happy to have to have done this yeah. with you, Mike, and Thomas James. Terrific. Again, 1922 is on Netflix. And later this week, you will be hearing another episode from The Losers uh, on Creepshow and Creepshow 2. So be sure to watch those movies this week. Yeah, you got, uh, you got 48 hours or 72 hours to watch all of them, uh, which shouldn't be a problem because I think they're only like, what, 90 minutes each, maybe? They're pretty short. And yeah. I think by this point, we will probably put something out there to say, make sure to watch this. But, yeah, you know, and, we're forward thinking people. Spoiler alert. Uh, the first one's better than the second one. <laughs> we're yeah. just going to throw that out big, there. Big, big spoiler alert yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, again, please, if you've not yet done so, uh, please leave us a review on Facebook, on iTunes. Be sure to spread the word to your friends. And you know what? Spread the word to your enemies. Maybe you'll make a friend that way. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? You never know. Uh, and until then, long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know.